another edition of the IDCA to Infinity Paradigm and Beyond podcast, where we bring in the most recognized faces and thought leaders of the technology industry and have candid discussions on topics pertaining to digital transformation, cloud, IoT, data centers, AI, big data, infrastructure, open source, and more. This time, I'm joined by Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and founder of RackN, and just longtime industry thought leader. Uh, Rob, welcome to the show. Mark, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Rob, you know, I, I always like to start um, these shows giving the audience uh, uh, a little bit of perspective on on where the speaker comes from and, you know, how they got to where they are. Tell me a little bit about, about Rob in his free time and, and what Rob was doing to get him to where he is today at RackN. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> how long do we have? The, yeah. yeah, it's actually funny. I've, one of my free time activities has been uh, using a Vive, so VR gaming. Um, my son left it when he went to college, and I've I uh, secretly adopted it and, and wow. have a lot of fun exploring the, the the travel. Right, you you literally we have an empty room, and I can travel wherever I want to in it. Um, that's awesome. And that's that's been really neat. Um, and my wife and I just finished. She finished way faster, but we're avid readers, so uh, we read War and Peace. Uh, <laughs> you can nice. do it a chapter a day over a year, um, and it was surprisingly good. It's not scary. It's it's a it's fun drama. Um, oh wow! Watching the BBC show. So that's a yeah. little of my free time. Nice. So how how did you get to where you are with Rackin? What you know? What were you doing before you? Um decided to found Rackin? Oh, uh, my co-founder and I were at Dell um, solving pretty much the same problem. So Rackin very briefly fixes the physical data center underlay problem. So we try to make data centers more repeatable and automated and less manual. Um, and we were at Dell uh, doing that same thing in the early OpenStack and Hadoop days. We were, um, I was on the board at OpenStack for four years. We were at the first OpenStack installer and realized that things were going to be bad yeah. Um, yeah. because data centers were not managed in a consistent way. And so any work we did, this is, um, boy, eight years ago now, um, any work we did to try and make data center operators' lives better was compounded by the fact that no two data centers were operated in the same way. And so we saw a real problem. Um, my career goes way back uh, in data centers. Before that, I was actually a early founder of a cloud startup, uh, did the first virtualized cloud infrastructures, 2001, believe it or not. Um, so, Rob, you know, talking about uh, RackN, and I've, I've obviously been a big fan of what you guys are doing, and, and you and I have had conversations in the past about um, the importance of creating a much more malleable, uh, or as, you know, the common uh, uh, term is uh, today, much more um, infrastructure as code type of environment for deployment of new yeah. capacity in your data centers. You and I have had those conversations for a long time. We're obviously on the same page, but for the audience, give us a little bit of your thought on, uh, you know, why you see it's being so important today and how you guys maybe are solving it a little differently than most. Wow. It's, it's a huge uh, challenge and, and opportunity. Um, the idea that people can write code for running their infrastructure should be like a no, a no brainer. It's super hard to, so it, when people do it, they end up doing it just for themselves. So it's not just a question of whether you can automate your data center. 
the, the thing that, w- that really motivates us is how you do it in a way that other people don't have to reinvent the wheel every data center they come to and that they can reuse things. And so for, when we looked at this problem, there were a couple, of, a couple of specific things that we felt like we had to address. One of them is the actual physical automation layer problem without needing specialized gear. Like we've seen people solve this with special servers or special like single vendor solutions. Um, we felt like we could solve it. We have solved it using uh, standard gear, right? Standard yeah. protocols, nothing, no magic, no specialized, yeah. only this vendor. That was really important to us. Um, the other thing that was really important though is this concept of composability, which I, I feel like is really overlooked, which says that I can give you a piece of automation, BIOS setting, um, Kubernetes install, the uh, SSH key injection, little pieces, right. and then I can, you can reuse that, and if you find a bug, I can fix that one piece, and you, everybody else who's using that piece can get the benefit. So, Rob, the definition you just provided, uh, you know, gives me a, uh, the, the feeling, I'm probably off base, but it gives me the feeling that um, you're trying to say that you're enabling infrastructure management in almost a microservices kind of way. Is that on, on course? It, it, it's on course in that it's the same idea, right? We're talking about decomposing big jobs into much smaller ones so that you can get reuse and people can redo it. It's just like object-oriented programming. It's the, the, the mistake somebody might make to think that we're, we're creating a whole bunch of microservices and, and then running the services. That's right. not what we're doing. Um, there's components that we do like that, but um, the, the real strategy here is the composability piece that you get from microservices where you can connect a whole bunch of things together and then critically version them separately. Yep. So the, the yep. benefit of a microservice over a monolith is that you can say, I'm fixing this one service and all the other services around it don't have to be fixed, changed, balanced, right? You can, you can create those separations and then you can take a service mesh or something like that and actually um, create an automation platform around it so that you have protections and circuit breakers and all sorts of cool patterns. Right, right. Um, all right, so, you know, Rob, we've, um, we've gone back and forth a little bit. Uh, you know I'm a fan of what you're doing, as I've already said. Uh, we've been talking about the importance of this as it relates to trends in the industry and, and you know, uh, kind of a, a simple, um, uh, seems to be a simple problem of recognition, but is a real difficult problem for people to grasp. And I think a lot of it is because of, you know, we're set in our ways. Uh, I like how Dave Linthicum uh, referenced it in, the, in our, my last podcast, where he referenced it as the folded ar- arm gang um, uh, uh, from an IT standpoint as, as one potential holdup. But I think the other holdup is that, um, it is so much of what happens in IT is incremental, right? There are few organizations that go from being a bank to becoming PayPal over the course of 18 months, right? That's a, that's a real rarity. And, and it's not so much the scale that I'm talking about as it is um, the difference in how technology must be delivered in order to satisfy um, the new way that you're interacting with your customers. And that's, and, and again, I know you and I have talked about this before, but it seems to me that that's one of the single most important aspects of getting your platform in place and getting the right combination of infrastructure um, platforms and components in place because more of us will have to act like a Netflix and a pay, or a PayPal or an eBay as we move forward because of these trends. At least that's my perspective. How, how would you add to that? Let's riff on that. 
Wow. There's so much, so much to sink my teeth into on that. Um, and the David Linthicum podcast was really good. One of the things that I left that one with, I mean, people should definitely go listen to it, um, <laughs> is the idea of leaving Slack in your schedule for innovation. Um, yeah. And you'll see why this is relevant. Because as a startup, we have a huge, a very hard time having people disrupt their process um, to embrace new things. The reason banks don't become eBay is because you have to tear apart so much of the, of the process and people infrastructure, let alone the tech. Uh, it's one of the things that we see with huge projects uh, that have a ton of momentum. And so there, there are people who want those projects to, you know, they want to transform the duck into a goose. Um, and it, it's not. It, it, it's much harder to make those transitions than it is to actually fix the problems that you have. And technology is especially like that, right? The idea that uh, you haven't considered something that, you know, in a containerized universe and form-fitting containers back into it is really hard, right? We have a lot of discussions around that in, in the yeah. industry. Can I containerize my whole thing? It's like you can, right. but containerize the new stuff first because you're going to build for that model. Um, right. And so I, I watch that uh, go on. There, there's, there's layers of, of, of things in this uh, around open source uh, and challenges that we've been seeing in open source, uh, the Redis and Mongo, license challenges where people aren't making money, the idea that people no longer think they can run their own infrastructure, um, which to me is hugely problematic. Um, I'm, I'm sort of going through this career. Since you, you, you create this huge space for me to try and fill, and I, I, know, maybe I, I need know. to pull back. Um, and, and, and we can drill on one thing that I think you and I see very much eye to eye on, um, which is this idea that people are no longer good at doing things. Uh, right. It's an Amazon myth. Um, it's, yep. it's promoted in a lot of cases by, you know, the idea that there's so much going on that companies can't do it all. They have to focus on their core strengths. You're, you sort of teed up this idea, your core strength is better be doing technology well <laughs> uh, as part of it because you can't really abdicate that, right? Amazon's already priced into the market. You better be able to do that better. Um, right. and, and so I get very frustrated when I see people assume that everybody's going to run to the cloud um, you know, and then, and then that's the end, that's the end game. Uh, it's table stakes. Uh, and I say that not from the way David Linthicum was saying it, where it's like, oh, you should go run, do everything in cloud because you have to. The, the benefits that people get from doing infrastructure as code and API driven infrastructure and things like that, and CICD infrastructures and things like that, you have to build those into yourself, but then you, you better be able to say, oh, now that I've gotten those skills, it's not that hard for me to then translate that back into running my own infrastructure um, or owning more of those processes. Because if you're doing machine learning, you, you teed up that at the beginning of the show. If I'm doing machine learning and AI and things like that, those are really expensive infrastructures to rent today. Yeah. And you're gonna find that at scale, having your own ability to run 100 or 200 servers, uh, we see this a lot with customers. That's not a big number right now. Yeah. Um, You'd better be good at that because renting that's going to be expensive. Um, it just it just is. Um, now maybe it'll get cheaper and Amazon will keep doing a good job. But you know that's you know are you are you ready to compete with Amazon? Um, yeah. 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 Well, no, and I I think you raise a, a couple of good points there. I mean, a handful yeah. at least of good points, and, and one of them <laughs> is that is that um, you know the the assumption that 
there is an end answer to anything in IT ever, um, I usually would argue is wrong, right? Um, just, just because, uh, uh, well, logic would say that no one will come around and compete with Amazon or Microsoft or Google anytime soon, and they're probably correct. Um, the, the ingenuity and variability of the components that make up any, anything IT related mean that something could be invented tomorrow um, to leverage what is already existing um, in ways that Amazon or Google could never do. And, and, cool. and so it, it right. there's just the, the idea that we should sell away without any ability to manage to right placement and manage to expanding where we want to expand when we need to expand and to do that in a similar fashion, um, that is where I see as being almost an arc, both a cultural and an architectural decision at the highest levels in an IT organization. Yeah, I think you're right. And I, I think that the idea that Amazon and Google and Microsoft don't have significant competition or won't be disrupted is very naive because of the amount of work we're, we're doing on edge, right? We're, yep. you know, I, I do a lot, you know, uh, leaning into edge and edge infrastructure and edge automation and application development. And that is so different. And the use cases are so different from traditional cloud where these incumbents have their footprints um, that they're, you know, all, we're, all it's going to take is a, somebody to get uh, augmented reality uh, goggles right or phone generation to have some better high bandwidth interconnect need uh, for us to flip into uh, this edge data center infrastructure where we're talking about a very different model. Right. Um, and that'll flip over. I, unfortunately, I don't think that the phone companies and cable companies who have an opportunity in front of them with this are as innovative as, as I'd like to see. Um, I know that, that your day job with Ericsson um, has some really interesting positions on this and software coming up. It's going to be a huge problem, a uh, huge challenge uh, to, to fix this stuff. Yep, yep. No, I totally agree. I, mean, well, I think people should be watching the space. It's yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely. And I, uh, there are a lot of things I would like to say here, but at risk of, um, of giving away what I think are maybe some um, secret sauce that we're working on with Ericsson, I'm not going to make too many overall comments other than to say that uh, you are 100% correct in my view on the notion that edge is, and, and edge can be defined in any one of, you know, from a, from a, from a location slash opportunity slash, um, uh, you know, demand driver slash uh, deployment strategy, edge could easily be defined in five or six different ways, right? There is, right. There is edge for, um, you know, uh, 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 an instance of Azure on somebody's factory floor. There is edge for somebody running drones out in the middle of the, uh, of the, of the country where there is no populated states. There is tractors, where, yeah. yeah, or tractors. And, you know, and there are many other examples, but one of the most common that, that, that I think about is this notion that the edge is made up of an incredible amount of opportunity to deliver a vastly improved and differentiated customer experience for workloads, to some degree, workloads, not necessarily the actual workload as coded, but workload as, as problem that needs to be solved, um, mm -hmm. and 
new opportunity for customer experience. And that edge to me is a combination of all of them, but in reality, it boils down to, I need to be able to get my app that may only have five seconds of influence on Rob Hirschfeld's day uh, on an average week. Um, but I need to get that out to a hundred million people or 500 million people around the world on anybody's network. And, right. and to be able to enable them to use whatever development strategy they're customarily or they're familiar with using for deployment of apps, right? And to me, that edge is just an enormous opportunity, but it is not an edge that will be defined by another Pokemon app that drives <laughs> investment of $20 billion in the market overnight. Right. It, it's, so, it's, so this is this is why I think Pokemon app is, is not necessarily the. It's interesting, but it's not necessarily the the key the key thing that, that you say. I totally agree. Right. This is this the app paradigms can't be totally new. Um, and yep. there's I want to I want to talk about um, proprietary versus open platforms. But first, yep. The the thing that makes Edge interesting is not the traditional game interaction app like you're thinking. It's the edge-to-edge -edge interaction app. And this is where I've been frustrated because people have trouble thinking about this in today's mindset. Yeah. The thing that, that is gonna make edge applications really compelling is when you have physical devices and beacons and sensors and cameras and microphones and smart whatevers and your phone and your headset, those need to be interacting with each other. And, and people are like, think edge, and then they assume that you're gonna, um, one of one of the guests in, in our in the latest shining podcast, which I, I co-host, uh, talked about is tromboning, um, which I yeah. love that phrase. Um, yeah. And so in in that one, you know, you're not going to trombone all this local data. It's got to be reconciled locally, and that is the thing that Edge does that's distinctly different. The application paradigms are different. The data sharing is different because you might have ten different or a hundred different vendors in this case, um, which then tees up the open source versus proprietary uh, problem and, and can, is, can we solve this with open source? Um, right, or should we right. solve this with open source? Yeah, and that's, and that's, the, that's the key question, right? And, and you and I started a conversation before we started recording um, about open source, specifically on OpenStack. And I, and I wanna, before we get involved and, and you know, dive deep into the nether regions of OpenStack, I wanted to just, <laughs> Make a, make a statement for myself, if not for both of us, and that, you know, RackN's product is under, under um, uh, supported by a, an open source uh, tool. And there are many open source tools on the market today that offer terrific value to the consumer of that tool. But one, one strategy does not solve problems in every space of IT. And I think, you know, based on our initial conversation, and I'll let you get started, there's some agreement from both of us on where OpenStack may have actually, at least in some parts of what we do and how we do it and how we grow the market, may have hurt us more than helped us. And that's, I, I've come to that conclusion, and I was deeply involved in OpenStack um, and, and formation of it, trying to, trying to figure this out. But you know, we get into a case where people um, have become, I must use OpenStack, I only use OpenStack, right? They, they think they, they make the, the mistaken comment that it has millions of contributors and huge development innovation pace, um, which is not true. 
uh, and I know OpenStack people are going to rise and they're, they're you know, rally, rise up and they're shaking their fist at me right now, but yep. it's this huge project. Individual components do not have high velocity and they are beholden to the whole project. So, yep. you know, unlike um, a small project, um, you know, that's very focused, they, they solve problems for the whole, they, you know, they're, they're sort of tied into that whole thing that's all integrated together. Um, and so their pace of development is limited. There are a lot of committees, a lot of people architecting things, discussing things, right? I've been watching their edge, edge people have discussions where every six months they groundhog day on what is edge. Um, and, and while you, you need those definitions and people and discussions and you need a community behind you, it's really helpful. At the same time, there's places where a small group of people understanding a problem and solving a problem can do it very quickly. Um, yeah, well, that, and now that's actually an excellent point. In fact, it's a point I made in an email with my brothers talking about a different um, <laughs> issue uh, brought up by Sam Harris about um, the future of AI. But it, it, I think, and I'd, I'd love to, to get you talking about it a little bit more, but I think that is a, a potentially a core problem is that the, the vast majority of real change that's happened, whether it's in drug discovery or whether it's in new inventions, have not been made by committee. They have not been made by thousands of people who somehow add up to a greater whole. They are made by a very small group and oftentimes even just one person who's willing to challenge the way things have been done in the past in a way that no one had thought of. And so I agree with the direction you're heading in this conversation around OpenStack and it leads yeah. me it, it actually leads me to be concerned. And this is, I was thinking about this in the car. And I don't remember what brought it up. And, and um, I mentioned it to you before we started recording. But I, I, I got this strange thought that has the, the creation of OpenStack actually done more harm than good to enabling private ownership of cloud infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And I, I realized that that for the average listener, for the average player in the OpenStack space, you and I right now are, are bringing blood into a church and drawing pentagrams, right? But, <laughs> me, but me, not, the, as, not the, as much as you, not the, as much the, as you the, think. The, I yeah. believe, yeah, but, but you know, I, I see the, the, the issue where we have um, builders of OpenStack uh, distros that aren't, in fact, creating open source anymore. They are creating proprietary stacks. There's no way you could share what you bought on, and with something else that you bought from another organization or that you built yourself. Uh, if you build for a specific capability ahead of time and then OpenStack catches up to it, you have to worry about all new APIs and you have to make a decision about whether or not you continue to develop the, against that going forward. How often will the community have your priorities in mind as you build forward, whether they're, whether they're too aggressive or not aggressive enough with building for those. The fact that if you have three distros that could all look similar, but if they're at all different, you can't treat them as if they're one cloud in three locations. Yeah. Um, these are real issues that, that while again, it's maybe blasphemy, even to many of the people that I work with and love every single day that, <laughs> that you know, four or five private cloud builders who owned soup to nuts, how this worked for a company, at least at a minimum, when you bought that solution, you, would, you, would have a, you could, in theory, have a sense of belief that that platform would work 
no matter when you bought it and no matter where you installed it in your larger organization. Uh, yeah. Am I, too far, am I off base? Or? Well, you're, you're, you're bringing up, there's two issues here and you're, you're bringing up an, uh, one of the ones which I find very differentiating, um, which is uh, open source as a, you maintain it thing versus a product. Um, open source, and there's a bigger, this is a small item and then I'll do the bigger one. Um, one of the problems with open source in general is that uh, some projects in order to maintain the, the, the way they evolve is as a, is as a um, consulting play or a serv you know, services play. OpenStack never created a vendor ecosystem where the community was incented to create a production benefit um, because they had so many vendors. So the vendors would, would say, oh, I am making the better OpenStack install experience or upgrade it or appliance or whatever. And the community just fractured on that and we never created a really sustainable, maintainable OpenStack. Single vendor projects uh, have a tendency or small, smaller communities have a tendency to really focus on the usability, the, sorry, the operability, what, what you had a great series on in LinkedIn called in customer experience. Yep, and yep. OpenStack's customer experience from a user pers operator perspective didn't really get that much focus. Um, but I think there's something different, right? We created this monolith um, where, and we're doing the same thing with Kubernetes and it's risky, um, where everybody's like, I've got to be part of this community and it's, uh, we've got a whole bunch of stakeholders to serve in how you know, the software gets built. And like with OpenStack on day one, I'm, I'm literally on day one, we were, how do we cram in Hyper-V and Zen and KVM and VMware has got to be able to come into it. And, um, yep, yep. oh my goodness. And so we started on day one, diluting the usability of the platform, which in, you know, some people with an evil laugh might actually say, oh, that was intentional. OpenStack hurt the industry in the same way that VMware hurt, hurt the on-premises industry too, by the way. Um, because it never created the operational experience to displace VMware on-premises, yep. on and it right. didn't create the API compatibility and momentum to challenge Amazon, and it literally ended up walking the worst of both worlds here, where it didn't create critical mass on-premises, right? Telcos are still struggling with how to upgrade, manage, and maintain it. So it was never built that way. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't built for them. <laughs> they, they have a need, they have a, a, you know, for network function virtualization or NFV and software defined networking. Those are real problems. But OpenStack wasn't built to solve those problems. It was built to, to, to be sort of an Amazon competitive, sort of a VMware competitor. And, and you're right, if we had let different systems come about that were function fit for that, we might have moved a lot faster and people might feel like they had IT alternatives on premises that um, were, were interesting and, and competitive. And there's a, there's a huge industry problem, it's a very simple one, because I, I see ISVs dying. You and I talked about this um, months ago in recordings. Mm -hmm. um, so IS, ISVs, independent software vendors, are becoming a, 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 as a service providers, um, cloud, cloud infrastructure people. Um, which in some ways it makes it easy for adoption, but the pace of innovation in those platforms, I don't feel like is as strong. When, when you have these independent vendors who can go among hundreds of thousands of environments solving one-on-one -on -one problems, 
we actually get a lot more, you know, much faster pace of innovation um, at, in the market than you see with, oh, I'm going to have something that an Amazon service or an Amazon adjacent service, and then Amazon's going to crush it, and I'm going to be out of business. <laughs> right. You know, the, the idea that we have this, this highly diverse, you know, lots of churn, really new ideas, pulling all things together uh, environment is a good thing. Um, it's reasonable. It's the same reason I don't think that we're going to have one hardware vendor who's going to, you know, create this dominant effect. And in our space, people talk about Redfish um, yep. and how Redfish is going to be amazing. We get calls for it. And I'm like, it's just a, a two end problem. We had IPMI. It was a mess. Now we have Redfish and it has vendor extensions. Instead yep. of getting upset about the vendor extensions, just realize that that is innovation and don't, don't act like everybody has to remora into the everything else, right? I, I wish I had a dollar for every time somebody told me that my project should become part of the open source project and um, it would be so much better if it was governed under the open source, open stack, not open source, but open stack um, right. model because that would make it easier for them to participate. Right, um, right. Ah, that's rent yeah, no, over, it, but wow, it's it's hard. Yeah. It, it is, it is really hard. And, and another way I've I've looked at this particular problem, um, and, and it's not like I mean I'm an expert here. I, I've had a considerable amount of personal experience that I leverage, but I'm not necessarily an expert on on the lifespan and opportunity associated with open source products. Um, I I've seen what I've seen, and it, it leaves me with an impact. And I and I relate it back to you know, projects and activities that I've done uh, from an IT standpoint. And I just, you know, I see the, the, from a product standpoint, if we think of OpenStack as a product, mm -hmm. it's, it's like going back to, let's say, pre-iPhone days. And we get all the phone, everybody in the phone industry together to create an open source phone, we would have gotten a slightly better BlackBerry. <laughs> That's right. We would not have gotten the Apple iPhone, right? And, and so my, my big concern here, and I think it mirrors what you were saying uh, in, in many pieces, um, is that we're in effect, we're doing that. We're bringing in, instead of we're taking some visionary folks, a small group of visionary folks who see the future that we should be building for, we instead are creating something that will be incrementally improved on based on consensus. And how many of us in leadership positions, if we know anything about being a leader and running a company, how many of us in leadership positions would say that all of our decisions should go through a complete consensus model? Well, and even worse, go for a consensus model where the sunk cost paradigm is not, not factored. Right. Um, Right. This was this was a big debate um, that I was leading inside OpenStack when I was in the in deep in the community was the conversation between a way to do something and the way to do something. Right. Um, and it's very hard for organizations um, internally and then projects and, and you know markets, not markets, but or, you know, to say, oh, we have two ways to do something. They're equal. One's going to be. You know, instead, we have a tendency to say, oh, this is the way to do it, participate or go away. Um, yeah. And I, that, that mentality, to me, was harmful in, yeah. when I looked at the community, because the community got so big. Um, and I think this is challenging internally to a company, too. You, you can be careful. This is the mode one, mode two thing with Gartner that drives me nuts also. Yeah. Um, 
where what we're saying is, is that to be innovative, you have to give your organization time to experiment. They can't always be rushing to get their job done and 110% committed because they don't have time to think or breathe. Yep. And you have to be able to say, we're going to do things a couple of different ways to see if one of them is better right. and allow that to happen. Um, and yeah. say, no, that's good. One of the, you know, it Finish. could be that this new thing <laughs> disrupts our old thing. Um, yeah. yeah. And that's, that's hard, but we have to be modeling that. Um, and sometimes we get open source, these open source communities and these IT communities who sort of say, oh, it's, you know, as long as we keep doing it this way, um, we're being innovative or we're doing the right thing. Um, and that can be yeah. really risky. Um, yeah. Well, and, and, I, and I totally agree. I mean, I, I, I'm just thinking through everything you've said there and I've, um, you know, you're, we're referencing what was mentioned um, in the podcast, my last podcast, um, a couple of times now, but uh, it is an incredibly important point and something that um, we've also talked about in um, uh, Miles' uh, CIO chat a couple of times. And that's really, you know, uh, it, it's, it's impossible for um, someone to innovate if on a daily basis they're shaving off things that they know they should be doing because there's too many things they know they have to do. Right. And I've had so many people work for me and I've been that person for a, a good portion of my IT career where, yeah, I should write that procedure, but I also need to keep the system running. I need to deploy these other servers. Yes. I should break down the recovery of this problem in, in manageable chunks and get the right root cause analysis out of it. But I've got too much pressure to solve it because I can't, not only am I getting pressure to not have too much downtime, but I've got pressure to get on to the next thing once yeah. I've recovered, right? And so that ability to provide that 10% extra time uh, during the course of a week, 10%, 15%, whatever it is, where you're not in the middle of the fire and you're thinking about uh, the overall protection of the forest and management of the forest uh, is when you have the real opportunity. And in fact, one of the reasons why many of my teams hated me going to events is that when I was in an event and I was in a, um, a less than thrilling talk, my mind had a chance to wander about what we could be doing differently. And so I would come home with all these new ideas for what we could be doing differently. And, um, and so, you know, it's, it's a double-edged sword, but it is, it is hugely critical. And, you know, the, the OpenStack example, I think, is a great one. But it's, it's also true that it applies it, to everything. It's one of the things that to me is the first lesson out of the Google SRE book, even if you don't subscribe to the, that, that philosophy, is they said, in order for us to keep up with the future, we have to spend 50% of our time automating. Yeah. Um, and and it's, the math is actually very, very simple. If you're not constantly making your day-to-day -day -day work less, it will swamp you very quickly. It's an exponential right. problem. Right, um, absolutely. And so, so you have to do that. The thing that drives, drives me nuts on, from a rack-end perspective is we have technology that's demonstrably 10 times faster to learn, which is important, and to manage, and then it actually works faster than traditional processes. Yeah. And yet, the, the people who need to make that decision and get involved in, in just trying it yeah. um, don't have enough time to get that benefit 
Um, and right. literally, if, if it was only a 20% benefit, people wouldn't even bother with that, right? right. Um, right. And so yeah. we're in this funny world where it, it's so hard to get somebody's attention um, to make their, their job better. Uh, and it feels like an out-of-control spiral to me. Yeah, yeah. No, and I would agree. And, I, and I'm actually going to use this um, as a segue into a point that uh, uh, I like to bring into um, almost all of my podcasts, and that's a reference to what I'm working on with um, uh, the tech exec and IDCA folks, um, and that's the, the infinity paradigm or uh, application ecosystem. I think that what you just said plays into what we're doing there uh, very well. And that's that it's one of the, one of the things that you mentioned was about, you know, 10, 10 X improvement and, and the associated issues of, of people still not necessarily seeing the opportunity. And what went, went through yeah. my mind when you were saying that was that the, one of the reasons that people don't see that opportunity is because people see the opportunity in the data center opportunity or risk piecemeal, right? There isn't mm -hmm. a, a Rob or a Mark that's responsible for determining whether or not the data center as it is today is the data center that my company will need tomorrow when my company is a new company tomorrow, right? And how do I measure that? How do I, how do I get the most out of my team in order to, to deploy effectively? How do I ensure that the amount of infrastructure I have is the right amount of infrastructure? How to make sure that I'm not overcomplicating when I don't need to but I am recognizing the complications that are required to accommodate a more potentially a more distributed um, framework for application deployment and ownership across multi-clouds or across multi-regions to better suit customer demand or, or even to prepare for what might be an accelerated deployment schedule based on turning the company into a platform and or attempting to address net new markets like the edge, right? These are all things that, that I think can be helped, if not solved, can be seriously helped by deploying a strategy similar to what we're attempting to accomplish with the infinity paradigm. And I know you read a little bit about it. Tell me, you I know, did, just- no, I, I, read, I read the doc, document start to finish because I, yeah. I think especially, this is one of those documents where read to the end because the case studies are really helpful. Um, because the, the thing that jumps out to me when, I, when you read the first page on, on the Infinity Paradigm and you, you see this classic DevOps loop and, you know, my eyes glaze over and I'm like, well, yeah, 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 it's all connected. We know, we know. Um, but when you go down further into it, there's actually analysis of competency grids and interconnections and giving up competency in one area in order to build competency where you need it and what the real cost is, right? So, you know, one of the biggest problems that you get and what you were alluding to is these false optimization problems. I'm a big gold rat fan. So theory of constraints, right? Yep, yep. You, you can spend a lot of it budget fixing a problem that is in the middle of the stack or at the top of the stack and is not actually the, your constraint. Um, or, um, and this is, we see this, we see this, what, what we do is there's times when if you rethink your model as in more, in a more abstract way, you could actually change the whole system. Uh, I can give a very specific example out of, out of what Racken does mm -hmm. um, that'll be useful in this. Um, so the, 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 the IDCA uh, infinity diagrams are based on sort of the stack up of, you know, all the way down to silicon and up or power actually and up, which is amazing. Um, and optimizing from that perspective. 
one of the things that we've been able to do is take uh, server reprovisioning times down into the minutes. Yeah. Um, most companies do it in months. Um, right. Companies right. can do it in a week. It's crazy. But when you when you change the time it takes you to do a fundamental task, it rewires everything around it, um, which is a Goldratt theory of constraints thing. Um, and we see this over and over again in IT. There's times when you take a task that used to take hours or months or weeks, turn it into something that took minutes, um, and then all of the cost models you built stacking around it have to be reevaluated. Um, right. right. Which the paradigm helps you do. That's that's the point. You you want to look at the grid and not just say, oh, if we improved efficiency here ten percent and went from you know five degrees of five nines to three nines, it would release. It. Yeah, that you do want to do that. But even more, you can say, what if we transformed this box so that it eliminated the, this cost or yeah. eliminated the time? Um, and you can look at that same grid and say, how do I? You know, where could we actually transform our operation? Right, um, right. By stepping back, totally. and it's I important. Think, I think it's an incredibly good good point, and a, and, a, and another another point that I wouldn't mind getting your quick feedback on is yeah. when you think about of that kind of um, change. And what it what it what it brings up to me was an example I had, and I won't name the company. I don't want to embarrass anyone, but I went to a well known uh, software company that was uh, just in the throes of beginning their um, transformation to get putting more things in cloud determining whether to keep stuff on premise or to, to move more of their services to uh, be delivered via one of the cloud providers, et cetera. And this is fairly early. I mean, this is like 2011. So it's for many companies that would have been considered early. And I went in and they said, yeah, we've looked at everything and it'll be a lot cheaper if we do it in and faster if we do it in the public cloud. And I said, okay, well that, you know, generally speaking, I can understand why you'd get to that. Just tell me the math. And they told me the math. And, and, and this is where I'm relating back to what you were just saying, but from a slightly different angle, is that their math was, we continue to do everything the wrong way, like we've historically been doing it, or we put it in public cloud, and the delta is the benefit. Yes. Right? So it's, it's a false comparison, right? A real comparison is, if we freaking got our ducks together and put them in a row and did this correctly, what's the delta then? And now I have a much more accurate perspective of, okay, not only am I doing right placement, but I'm doing right placement in combination with monetary return on investment. Right? Uh, and this is, this is the inertia problem. Uh, and I see a lot of companies in this challenge of they move to the cloud, not because it's better, but because fixing what they have is too arduous, is yeah. too, requires too many hard conversations, requires too much disruption. And, you know, as much as I, I was poo-pooing on mode one, mode two from Gartner earlier, yep. uh, it, it, this, that is actually part of the uh, building an organizational skill set that allows you to then do things, you know, sort of leave leave behind the legacy pieces. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, I actually think that there's a degree of um, laziness in that, um, <laughs> in part because right, we worked really hard uh, in order to make legacy protocols work and, and things like that. And you can do it, and I think it's worth the investment because it actually ultimately accelerates you, so you're not mm -hmm. bouncing all over the place. 
Right. Um, but that's, that's one of those things that takes, it takes time for you. And it's hard. It's hard as a leadership, as a leader, leadership team to invest in bridges right. um, instead of burning boats. Um, right. But I, I really think that that's, and, and, and vendors do this as a, as a, you know, to, to keep you, to keep you from moving. Um, and I think it's ultimately a self-defeating strategy, right? We, we need to find ways to say these current protocols work. They're actually pretty good. Um, this is going to sound totally contrary to me uh, talking about architectural requirements for edge. Yep. Um, <laughs> and, and so, right, this, there, there isn't an easy thing. At, at some, sometimes there's an architectural reason that you need to say jump. And sometimes there's a um, time when you want to build bridges and connect things over. Um, it, you know, one of, it's, it's just a, it's, you, you sort of have to look at through. Now I feel totally hypocritical. Oh no. <laughs> which, is, which, which your answer is welcome to IT, Rob. That's the way, you know, there's no easy. Yep. Yep. That's right. Um, so, you know, I, I do think we have to struggle with, with finding ways to build bridges and connect things forward. Um, so we solve problems and then realize when we can actually make a transformative difference and jump. Right. Um, right. No, I agree. And it, and it is a hard spot. And I, I would say that going back to a point that we um, touched on early on in the recording is um, that much of that actually starts at the operational um, and not even the operation, the organization as in mm -hmm. culture, rather than any particular tool. I think the appropriate tools can be acquired to help facilitate similar to you can acquire tools to make DevOps more efficient, but if you don't have the organizational alignment to make DevOps work in the first place, and the appropriate goals and settings, et cetera, in place, then all the tools in the world won't make you DevOps ready. And, and, and just like now, you, you will not transform because you've moved to cloud. You will not transform because you've bought a great tool, but you will transform if you've got the appropriate culture and, and organizational alignment to, um, to make that kind of change. And, and I, would, I would also advocate, look for tools that encourage uh, positive feedback cycles and behavior and training and things like that. It's yep. um, right. That's, that's one of the things for us when we try to look at the whole picture, um, the people the process and the tech part of what we, we want to do is have the, the tooling that we design encourages people process improvements just as much yep. as it, right. That that's right. Our, our problem in the data center you want to go all the way back um, to, to the, our opening was that everyone was different and that's not a tech problem. They were all used to the same technology, the people process problem. Um, and there were tech, there's tech problems sprinkled in that, but um, that's, that's the, that's the harder problem to solve. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally agree. Totally agree. Well, we, um, I know speaking from experience that you and I could go on on these topics for <laughs> easily another couple of hours, but we're going to have to um, bring it to a close. And, and so I wanted to just say a couple things about um, today's session and then Rob, feel free to add something at the end Thanks. as you like, or, or provide us, you know, a, a takeaway. But I, I just want to urge folks that are listening to, to take a few um, takeaways from this, uh, you know, uh, first of all, uh, Rob knows the space up and down. So I'm talking to the audience here, Rob, Rob knows the space okay. up and down and, and he's got lots of great experience. Um, and many of the examples that he provides are examples provided from 
you know, direct exposure and direct experience uh, in those circumstances and working with enterprise IT groups and, and uh, inside his own company. And they align very well with the thinking I have relative to IT. And, and so if there's, if there's, you know, two things that you take away from today's event, um, one of them should be that you need to find time within your organization to, to step outside of the fire. To, to, to step out, to step off of the, um, the whirlywig uh, or whatever spinning object you happen to be near um, and, and take a bigger look at what it is you're doing with IT and what you're doing for your company. And, and maybe in the, something like the infinity paradigm can help you there. And so if you think it could go take a look at idca.org uh, and check it out. But beyond that, it's, it's that, the, the crowd isn't always right, right? Um, and and that's, a, that's a hard one, right? I mean, that's a hard one, especially, you know, in, in today's days of battling over uh, um, public news, like political agendas and stuff like that, and trying to say you have numbers and, and, and that makes you right. And, you know, when, I, when, when I'm in the numbers and the numbers agree with me, then I want to agree with the numbers. But the fact is, is that numbers don't always make it right. And we've got a lot of numbers behind some projects in the industry today that don't necessarily add up to a guaranteed success. In fact, I would argue that um, few companies have deployed um, OpenStack, few traditional enterprise companies have deployed, deployed OpenStack um, in the time period and with the success um, at the cost that they originally assumed would be true. Um, and if I'm wrong, I would be happy to hear about them. But um, those are the, you know, the two things that uh, I would suggest you take away from this. Rob, anything you'd like to add? Um, I, I do. These, these are great things. I, I suspect there's some OpenStack people who are, are going to send you some, uh, air quotes, fan mail on that yeah. statement. Um, but we, we give the benefit of the doubt. Um, to, and I, I struggle with this, to uh, technologies and projects that we think are getting very positive statements. And so there are times when you, 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 learning is a struggle and you, you need to go through a process and, and improve and learn. And there's times when you assume that you're a one person island struggling on something that's actually not, not gonna work or, or much harder than it should be. Um, and it's impossible to know the difference between those things. Um, no, it's not actually no it's not impossible at all um, I think that we we should be can we should like you're suggesting question some of the conventional wisdom on on what it takes for us to be personally successful and not assume that just because um, we're struggling with something means that it's our fault or that right. um, we haven't understood something in, in a lot of cases if you're struggling with something it's because it's not all the way there. There's something, there's something not right. Um, and I, I think that's, that's true in technology. I think it's been true in some of the open source technologies that, that have gotten huge reviews and positive feedback. Um, I think it's true in our life. Um, you know, I, I've watched like John Willis does some really great things about, you know, uh, uh, self-shaming, self-doubt, imposter syndrome. Um, you know, reaching out and asking for help and, you know, people should, should recognize they're not alone uh, and use yeah. this as a call to ask for help. Um, and then if something's not working, stop trying. 
find right, find a, right. find another way to do it. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, totally agree. In fact, it's funny, but um, I end uh, probably a third of my blogs, maybe more, uh, going back as far as five or six years, um, with a statement that uh, mirrors what you just said. Right? Don't don't assume that this problem is something that you should attempt to address on your own. Look for partners, get help, um, but be smart about what it is you are trying to get, right? Um, uh, another good reference, and I first um, talked about this reference uh, with the famous uh, John Willis um, uh, many years ago, and that's, uh, you know, go take a quick listen in that 10% time you've allocated now to investing in your, um, your thought process and your innovation for your company Take uh, one of those uh, open windows and listen to Simon Sinek's uh, piece on determining the why, right? Um, and that, that is so important to any activity that you do, but um, incredibly important to activities that have a lasting footprint um, impact on an organization like a large IT uh, project does. All right. Well... Folks, thank you very much for listening. And Rob, thank you very much for uh, an entertaining, um, uh, probably close to an hour we've spent now, even with the uh, yeah, I think so. intermittent stops. And um, I really appreciate it. And, and, um, and you know, it, I hope that um, I can get you on the show again sometime in the future. I, you and I need to script it because this is two podcasts. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's true. It's true. Oh. All, right. All right. Well, I, um, I just want to wrap up with that again and say thank you to Rob. Uh, thank you for everyone for listening. Um, and uh, please join me for the next episode. I, I actually, next episode is likely to be a surprise guest. I've got two different mm -hmm. people that I'm um, negotiating with for um, coming on next week. And so you'll just have to um, be surprised uh, when I announce next week. But uh, one uh, gentleman from NIST potentially will be on and another one is is uh, making AI software for data centers. So it could be one or, or of those two. Uh, until next time, I'm Mark Teeley, and you can find me on Twitter at mteeley10, and you can find my blogs on my LinkedIn profile. Rob, how can people find you if they're looking for you? I am uh, Rob Hirschfeld. Pretty easy to Google rack in. Um, my Twitter handle is vehicle, Z-E-H-I-C-L-E, uh, like vehicle but with the Z. Uh, and yep. Most everything I do goes out through that, and I'd love to get into a good Twitter war. So, yeah, same here. Welcome to get same here. We, and we probably just created a couple on this call. <laughs> All, right. All right, Rob, <laughs> thank you very much, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Cool. Thanks, Mark. Great right. discussion. Same.